Welcome to the Loose and Conversational Podcast, everyone. My name is David Keem, and weekly I sit down with co-host Jen, we have a few drinks, and we talk to people. It's as simple as that. This episode features a guy named Scott Olson. I met Scott Olson through LinkedIn a little over a year ago. Now, a funny thing about LinkedIn, I never, ever mention the podcast on it. I try to keep some distance between my real job and the Loose and Conversational Podcast. The concern is, folks in my professional life might not understand why I like to talk about the things I do in the podcast especially because I'm usually kind of a little drunk when I do it. However, if more people on LinkedIn were like Scott, I would reconsider. In this episode, we get to know Scott. We had a topic, but we never got to it because this man is so interesting. We've already booked him for a return visit to talk about leadership. Scott was initially a lawyer until he joined the FBI to work in counterintelligence. He was on the ground in New York for 9-11. When he was a teenager, he was a guide on Mount Rainier for crying out loud. This episode goes by quickly, so I'll let you get to it. One thing, though, I have had a couple of comments about the music played at points in the podcast. What's up with the music, they say. After the intro debacle a while back, I started using a website that provides music, but I have to pay for it. It costs me the same whether I use the intro music or use different music for every podcast. I'm cheap, so if I'm paying for it, I'm going to use it. It's a principle, you see. Enjoy the episode, friends. Welcome to the Loose and Conversational Podcast. my good genetics and clean living clean living i just don't imagine fbi agents clean living you know i imagine them as being clean living <laughs> well it's it's an interesting dichotomy because um there are actually a lot of uh, mormons lds people who are fbi agents they're the ones who have been to college and who can pass the security clearance <laughs> ah. in my era the biggest percentage of you almost made it, but we're not taking you reasons was was pot. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. How about now? But you would still get excluded for pot now, wouldn't you? You would not. It's interesting how uh, over the course of my career with the Bureau, the uh, the, the drug policy, they call it, changed. Um, and it was, it was a very bright line rule uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. or it was a bright line rule until then. And then they realized we're not taking people who lit up in college. Um, and that seems kind of stupid. And so in the late 90s and in even post 9-11, they, they changed it. So if it had been long enough ago and, you know, one or two instances, they wouldn't exclude you for using cocaine. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. We went yeah. from pot to cocaine yeah. every now and yeah. then. <laughs> very, very quickly. We, the FBI we went, went from really square to, <laughs> geez. Like, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The, the so, guy you wonder whether you're going to invite them to the party or not. Now I know. It, exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very pragmatic now, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but. Um, a party with all Mormons wouldn't have been a good party. So. <laughs> yeah. It would have been a lot of, a lot of dessert though. Yeah. Not yet. A lot of dessert, and I got to get home early. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of our first podcasts, actually, we did ended up doing two episodes with her, uh, somebody we work with, and she's a member of the LDS church. And it was, we for us, it was... Fascinating. Yeah, it was fascinating. We, I sort of went down this rabbit hole trying to learn more about it, and I'm like, this is a genuinely... <laughs> Like, it's weird that to me that we let this something with this much, how do you say, I don't want to call it odd or anything like that. But so I, I think most people don't understand the LDS church and we just accept it into our mm-hmm. as a normal thing. Whereas if this somebody showed up tomorrow, we never heard of it before and they described it to us, we'd be like, get out of here. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I mean, my my first wife was the member of a religious order who once a week ate human flesh and drank blood. Oh, my oh, okay. God. Yeah, she was Catholic. Oh, I get you. Yeah. So, I mean, depending on your approach, and I'm, I'm, I'm not Catholic, but um, having gone through the process to marry a Catholic person and meeting with the Monsignor and being instructed that, you know, for the faithful, the host actually becomes the flesh of Christ, and for the faithful, the wine actually becomes, you know, and then... You're you're bringing my sense of humor to it. So basic, <laughs> basically, we're you know vampire cannibals here. Uh, oh well, no, it's not that. But we're we're eating flesh and drinking blood, right? And then they they didn't think it was all that funny. I thought it was freaking hilarious. It, it, it is when you put it like that. It's funny. Yeah. I, I grew up as Roman Catholic, but I'm not anymore. Like. I yeah. think of like a lot of people in my generation, like, I'm just not, right? But I discovered my my girlfriend grew up, I guess, Protestant. I don't really know what, what, what she was. She, I found out yesterday, she has no idea what Easter is. Like, she literally has no, she knows it's a holiday. She knows it's connected to religious stuff. She has no idea that it has different days. She doesn't know what happens on the different days. She doesn't know why we do anything. Wow. So that was really eye-opening, yeah. And then it, it occurred to me, I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I went to, I was taught it as a kid, right? I guess if you never were taught it, it would be like any other religion that you don't really know that much about. You sort of hear about it, you know, friends do stuff, but you don't really internalize it. So yeah, it's uh, that that's true. If you haven't learned, you don't know, but impressively bad is still impressive. I <laughs> used to say <laughs> that's true. My very favorite cousin, he's four or five years older than me, his family, this is my dad's sister married a Mormon fella and they had six kids, I think. And so all my cousins from that family are all Mormon and he's gay. And he married his longtime partner eight years ago or so. They met when they were both going to BYU. They're oh, wow. both Mormon and they're both gay. <laughs> wow. They've got pretty thick skin then, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, they are just my favorite people. You talk about sitting down and having a couple of cocktails and seeing where the conversation goes <laughs> with those guys. It is so much fun. Let's get them it on is, the podcast. It is so yeah. fun. <laughs> oh, we could bring a whole bunch yeah. of subjects together. Yeah, we could. <laughs> Do we want to talk about LDS again? Do we want to talk about uh, homosexuals? Do we want to talk about, let's talk about all of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah why not? Hmm. Yeah, I felt awkward there when I said it. See, I had to pause. I didn't know what the right word was. <laughs> So I went, with a, I went with a technical term and then it sounded wrong. Okay, you're learning, David. I'm learning, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the key is to have enough alcohol that you don't really get concerned. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. Well, that's and, the whole and, point of this podcast. And, and isn't that part of it really is to to step away from other people's hurt feelings, making you feel bad. And it's a very strange dichotomy, right? But if somebody else feeling bad makes you stop, then all of a sudden, who's in control now? The person who's perennially hurt. Yep, yeah. And and that that's what a child does. That's not what an adult does. Adults have coping skills. Children are hurt all the time. And I don't mean to criticize children, but children are still learning. And you look around today, what adults have learned is to stay children. And I spend a lot of time screaming inside my own head, <laughs> grow the fuck up. Come on, man. And yeah, that never seems to help. Well, and it's funny because I've got a Gen Z daughter and she seems more grown up at 17. Yeah. And, and not just her, but what she tells about her friends and generally her generation, then I would say people 10 years older than her in, in you know, the millennial generation. Not yeah, that I'm criticizing uh, millennials, Jen. <laughs> it's okay. I'm a millennial today. 
So tell us a little bit about yourself because we met on, we oddly enough, we met on LinkedIn. Yeah. You answered a question that I had and then we started having a really good conversation about leadership. And I hope we get, I hope we get time today to talk about leadership because I think it's something that the three of us are all interested in and funny about leadership. That's a real podcasty kind of topic. So it's funny <laughs> that our podcast wants to talk about it, but because like we usually, can. but we usually sort of land on a subject that another podcast would have a whole podcast about. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We just quickly go through it. <laughs> but tell us, cause you're a fascinating guy. Like when I tell people, who you are uh they want to know who the guest is this week and i start telling them and like you almost have an unbelievable resume especially for somebody sitting in canada yeah well and it's it it's a funny thing because i, I don't care who you are your life your own life from the inside seems terribly ordinary but everybody else looking from the outside oh you did this you did that it seems remarkable well for you yeah i was gonna say that <laughs> yeah. i don't relate to that at all <laughs> So, you know, the um, I love a good glass. This is a godfather. It's actually a my version of a Russian godfather, which is the cocktail, the godfather with a shot of vodka in it. Um, oh, cool. So I well, co- what's in it? What's in it? Uh, so a, a godfather is scotch and amaretto. So two shots of scotch, one shot of amaretto. And if I put in a shot of vodka, I call it a vor. See, that's a drink. What's that? That is a drink. Yeah. That's it, a drink. It, that's it, a drink. Yeah. It, it, it's awesome. And so the... The Russian version of a godfather is a, a Vora Vizicone, and they use the term Vor. So I'm drinking a, a Vor. Um, oh, cool. And as you can tell, in addition to booze, my drug of choice is a captive audience and the sound of my own voice. So I'm <laughs> loving this. You're here. Yeah, you're, um, you're, you're, with the, the, you're with your people right now then. I am drinking whiskey. I added ice to it. <laughs> what, uh, what's your poison? What, what kind of whiskey? It's actually, I got to look. I was given this to try. It is Signal Hill Canadian whiskey. It is non-chill filtered, whatever that means. It's from Newfoundland. And oh. it's actually, it's really fantastic. Oh, Normally I just drink whatever, but this is a, this is a treat for me. That's uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, my my vodka is um, Crystal Skull, Dan Aykroyd's. Oh, hey. Oh. Yeah, we know from, that well. Yeah. For it's, years. It's fantastic stuff. Yeah, for years that was like that was our drink. Yeah, the official vodka of our hotel. We yeah. we do no this kidding. thing pre-COVID called bar ritual. We do it at five fifteen every day, where we basically throw a really really quick party in the lobby, and we would down a bottle of Crystal Skull vodka every single day. Yeah, we we've got so many of those skulls kicking around the hotel still because we we go through one every single day. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's fantastic. And then we, I think it was up until like almost we just switched, and then COVID hit. Well, we switched with gin, didn't we? briefly yeah. it was oh. a disaster the, oh. Janet, the <laughs> idiot that was doing it before switched it to he it was supposed to be local and we went with it because dan Aykroyd's canadian and yeah. we thought well this is canadian right it replaced uh us gin that we used from the beginning that the, all the botanicals came from the canadian north so then we went we switched from that to crystal skull because they supported us a little bit more yeah and then our it somehow got switched to the seaweed gin or something from newfoundland so mm. we were in the process of switching it back and of course covid hit and there went the idea of standing around and handing out people drinks yeah. from a punch bowl and <laughs> yeah, we'll see if it comes back so yeah crystal skull vodka and uh, ice wine there are a couple of very good producers of ice wine in north You're america like an and, Canadian. And, and well they're, they're all kind of, well i i am partially canadian um what does oh, really? that mean So what that means is on my mother's side, so I grew up in Seattle and uh, I currently sit in Eastern Pennsylvania, but I grew up in Seattle and I left there when I was in my early thirties to take the job with the FBI. I asked for 
a counterintelligence assignment. And so that's when they sent me to Manhattan, to New York. So the Seattle kid ends up chasing Russian spies around the UN community in New York. But I, I grew up in Seattle and my on my mom's side, my mom's paternal grandfather. So my mom's father's dad was a timber baron in BC. Um, oh, cool. He had three sons, one of which was my grandfather. When And, and of those th- those three sons, their parents, my great-grandfather and great-grandmother, were Canadian citizens, but the three boys were actually born in Seattle. When they reached their majority, they were allowed to elect citizenship back then. It was like the 19, late 1920s. Um, oh, wow. So a while ago. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So I'm I'm 59. I'm not a young man. I got three kids. They're ages 25, 27, and 31. My middle is a boy. The oldest and youngest are girls. My oldest, who's a girl, just had her second baby. She's got a three-year-old and a, a newborn. So I, I got two grandkids. That's no fair if you're 59. Because <laughs> he looks so good. <laughs> yeah, he, he literally looks so good that I do. I, I'm an actual, legitimate baby boomer. I was born in 1962, so I'm wherever you set the end of the baby boom. I'm, I'm, I'm an actual baby boomer, and and I got to say this. I mean, people bitch about millennials. The baby boom generation was originally called the me generation. It is the it it's the first all about me selfish generation. So millennial, I, I get it, and I think millennials are great because they hold you accountable. Basically, all the stuff they want you yeah. to do, particularly in a leadership realm. They're like, you suck. And if you don't stop sucking, I'm going to leave. The reason you suck is because you're not doing it right. Yeah, 100%. And maybe we should look at the bar and and get past the annoyance. In any event, so I grew up with my grandfather and my parents living in Seattle, but two granduncles living in BC. And so when we would do the soccer exchange, I don't know if you ever played soccer when you were a kid and did the, the Canadian exchange, which we did in Seattle. So Canadian teams would come down and you'd host a player on the opposing team and play a game. And then you'd go up to Canada. So that trip for me was going up to Canada, playing the game, and then going and seeing my my second cousins. Oh, cool. My What, what part of BC were they in? New Westminster. Um, oh, cool. Oh, so near Vancouver. Yeah. Um, so my, my, my great grandpa had this huge house there and my, my granddad was a patent attorney and he, the story is he had done some work for a Canadian boat builder and the guy couldn't pay him. So to settle the bill, he had given my grandfather his personal boat, which was this 35 foot cabin cruiser, all wood, beautiful. And so once a summer we would take that boat and I've got two brothers and a sister. So four kids, my parents and my grandparents. We'd sort of shoehorn ourselves into this boat and we would go cruise up through the San Juans. And uh, oh, wow. One of my grandfather's brothers bought a huge parcel of land on Salt Spring Island in the sort of the, the mid 70s, mm-hmm. um, way before Salt Spring Island was popular. And he bought 500 acres. And oh, wow. it, it's now, I think a lot of it's been sold off. And for a while, the family, after he passed away, the family was arguing about who got it or, you know, who got the money. Um, I was going to say that's, that would be worth works. a lot of money. Yeah. It, it wasn't when he bought it, but it 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 was <laughs> years later. So that's, that's... That's a funny thing about Canada. You don't have to go that far back to find out when stuff right now, like you, you don't got to need to go, go back 
30 years to find some places that are super expensive now that you could get for nothing. Yeah, yeah. It, exactly. So I, I I grew up in Seattle, went to university and law school there. The job I got out of law school was as a, as a prosecutor, criminal prosecutor. Um, I did that for about six years, enjoyed it, but didn't love it. And I was kind of looking for something else. I'd gotten married during that time and two of the kids had been born at that point. And I was I was fortunate. I had a witness from the local small office who was a FBI agent and we got friendly and he kind of recruited me a little bit. I had no idea what I was looking for. I just knew that I wasn't going to spend the rest of, you know, the rest of my life being a prosecutor. And I found out from this guy, his name was also David, about the counterintelligence mission. I had no idea that it was the FBI's responsibility to uh, identify foreign spies in the United States and and stop them. And I thought, you know what? That's for me. Um, so that's like a job that you could just get. <laughs> just like apply that for. That blows yeah. my mind. <laughs> what does your cover letter say for that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to catch those fuckers. You, yeah. know, like, <laughs> you know, Scott, we really liked everything you've shown us and we'd like to have you join the team. Congratulations. You're a spy hunter. Yeah. It said, please, please, please let me do this. And and what's funny is, and and this this kind of blew my mind, because I, I came into the Bureau to do counterintelligence work. And I remember when you when you get to the FBI Academy, you're in a group, well, back then you're in a group of, of 50 other people who are going through new agents training. And what they do is they pull two active agents who are in the middle of their careers and they, they pull them out of wherever field office they are and they have them come and sort of sit with you and, and guide you through the process. They're called field counselors. And so you, you have these two experienced people you can talk with and ask questions. One of these guys got up at the front of our class to introduce himself on day two. And uh, he's up there and he tells us a little bit about himself and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, the advice I have for you is going to sound strange, but it's really, really true. There are many opportunities in the Bureau. There are only two things that you don't want to do. The first First is you don't want to go to New York. And the second is you don't want to do counterintelligence work. So you and heard, like, go to New York and do counterintelligence yeah. work. I'm like, I, <laughs> you were the bathroom at the time. And- yeah, I'm, I'm like the lazy-eyed stepchild called Ruprecht <laughs> that they keep in the basement. But, so, you know, I'm, I'm on my course and I'm a pretty stubborn guy anyway. So I'm like, you know what? That, that guy's probably wrong. And most of the times in my life, when I say that guy's probably wrong, I end up getting my ass kicked. But this time, actually, he was wrong. And the reason he was wrong is because he'd never done counterintelligence work. And the reason that most of the Bureau, even now, still doesn't think counterintelligence work is all that interesting is because when you're going out and you're having a couple of drinks after work with your buddies, with the Bureau, everyone's telling war stories. And when you do counterintelligence work, and this is before the days of counterterrorism. Um, the counterterrorism division didn't even exist when I came into the Bureau in 1996. It was all National Security Division, and it was all chasing spies. And when you're out at a bar and you're having a beer, the guy who's chasing the La Cosa Nostra guys, the guy who's doing a white collar investigation, particularly once that case is done and it's through the courts, it's war story. Hey, we did this arrest. We did this. And it was a really complex thing. And it was in the news last week. And, and it's a really cool case. And what are you and counterintelligence guys doing? Yeah, we can't tell you. Yeah, we can't tell you. We can't because it's all classified, secret level or top secret level. And what generally happens is every once in a while, you'll get 
get a criminal person, a guy or a gal that gets sent over to a counterintelligence squad kicking and screaming. And two weeks later, they sit there going, holy shit, I had no idea what you guys do. And it's actually pretty cool. What so so give us do. an idea as much as you can. Like what do you do? Because I, I, I wouldn't have a I wouldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> so so the New York, certainly in, in the in the nineties and the two thousands when I was there for my first tour, New York was sort of like Vienna of the nineties because the UN is there. Uh, and so lots of foreign countries are there. And foreign countries that the United States doesn't have diplomatic relationships with are there. Iran has a presence and North Korea has a presence. There is not an Iranian embassy in Washington, D.C. And there's not a North Korean embassy in Washington, D.C. because we don't have diplomatic relations. The U.S. doesn't have diplomatic relations with either of those countries. But both of those countries have missions to the U.N. So you have diplomats quote unquote, from those countries who are present in the U.S. under an international civil servant visa, and they live on the economy in New York and they go to the U.N. And so what every single country does is they dedicate a number of, when you're extending a diplomatic presence into a foreign country, you're given a number of slots, a number of of job positions. You can have 15 diplomats or you can have 300 diplomats. And so what every country does is they say, okay, we're getting, you know, 125 slots and 50 of those slots are going to be for spies. And the other 75 are going to be for what we call clean diplomats. And so what you do when you're the counterintelligence service is you're looking at the diplomatic presence in your country. So every country has an embassy. It is in Washington. A lot of countries have missions uh, at the UN in New York. And then around the country, there are, are consulates. Chicago has a lot of consulates. San Francisco does. LA does. Houston does to provide services for that country's citizens that are either tourists in the United States or or whatever. And in every one of those locations, some of those slots are filled by people who are actually trained spies. Oh, wow. And and so what kind of information are they trying to gather? Like is it mostly is it about the military? Is it is it about industrial stuff? Is it about It and this this is the the stupid answer, right? It really depends. It depends on the country and it depends on what they're interested in. And so if it's the easy one, right? The ground ball. If it if it's Russia, they're pretty much interested in anything. Um, but it would depend, right? So if we are within a year of a G20 summit, what every country that has spies in the United States, what every country that has spies in Canada wants to know is, you know, what's the Canadian government's posture on the agenda for the G20? What's the United States government's posture on the agenda for the G20? And so those spies will be tasked with identifying people who have access to that information, and then they use their spy tradecraft and technique to convince those people, either wittingly or unwittingly, to give them that information. And the FBI's job in the U.S., in Canada, it's, it ceases, the, the Canadian uh, Security Intelligence uh, Service, it's their job to identify who those people are and to keep track of what they're doing so that they can't get the stuff that they're looking for. And it's a very, very long game. It's fascinating and it's so much freaking fun. You're not what, trying to get them out of the country. You're just trying to inhibit their ability to get the information. Well, think 
think about it this way. It's it's a challenge to identify who the spy is, right? Mm-hmm. So if you identify a spy and then you throw them out, you're back to square one. I guess, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because there's another one to take their place. Yeah, there, there's another one to take their place, but you're not sure who that is. Now, th- there's this thing called slot secession where we all know, you know, because you know, no matter where it is, if it's Moscow or Vienna or Beijing or wherever, there's slots of session. You have a diplomatic presence and a percentage of those slots are spies. And it's just too much of a hassle to change the job. So if a spy, if you've identified a spy serving in a position, you know, the next guy's probably a spy, but you still have to, you still have to prove it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's actually a lot more effective to not throw the guy out and to just see what he's doing. And no. and, and if, would you would you like meet these people and get to know them? And are you just in like a car are you across? are you are you trying to work them as well? Yeah, or do you just sort of observe them from afar and uh, all of those things? And again, the the annoying answer is it. It kind of depends. Um, and the really annoying answer is to go deeper into this starts talking about U.S. intelligence tradecraft and the it's like the playbook. Right. And and even though I'm not going to show you because, you know, <laughs> we only have 100 <laughs> listeners. I mean, yeah. it's barely anything. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. You barely anything. come on the podcast, all of a sudden we become really popular in China and Russia. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you you laugh, but, but I cry because that's exactly what it is. And then not yeah. that they're, you know, looking at Scott Olson to give him the keys to the kingdom. But <laughs> but, the you know, the the playbook is the playbook. And it and it really is like, you know. The offensive lineman that that leaves his you know playbook in the bathroom somewhere that that's not good. If they know I, what I your strategy is, we, not good. we never read the playbook. <laughs> well, yeah, but somebody else can read it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, true. I'm I'm impressed that you can read if you were a lineman. Sorry. <laughs> well, actually, it's funny. When I was in high school, we we would play both sides of the ball, offensive and defensive. And I hated playing offensive line. I mm. just hated it. I loved playing defensive line. So I remember uh, grade 12 was a year and I was a starter and I was starting on both sides. And all of a sudden it occurred to me one day, if I just screwed up constantly on offensive line, <laughs> yeah, sure enough, play like defense. I got screamed at. The coach actually kicked me in the leg at one point. <laughs> but I lost my starting position on the offensive line and I'd never been happier because I got <laughs> Because then I got to stay on defense. I was always fresh, and I did better. And- <laughs> it's it's well, all make- it's all about the strategy, man. It really is all about the strategy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you make your job sound very interesting. Is there a way two Canadians can get into that job? Oh, I couldn't do that because <laughs> of the cocaine, or for another reason? No, I I don't know. I <laughs> I, I think I'd have trouble because it sounds like you have to be pretty. I don't want to say level headed, but you have to keep a lot of stuff in your head at the same time. That's and sort you'd of- have to have an inside voice, which you don't have. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what you're saying. Is you'd have to have an inside voice that's the wrong thing yeah there's like, hey, you, you're the spy i'm sure of it <laughs> yeah you, you do have to have a modicum of self-control the really interesting thing about the canadian service is you have to be bilingual and they test you um you, you say have, cool yes. i say disappointing yes. <laughs> yeah you have, to, you have to be bilingual in canada to do a lot of things unfortunately yeah and it's 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 a it's an interesting thing but it's um and you I, can't just pick the languages <laughs> the other one has to be french the, the other one has to be french yeah um, yeah. You can't come in and say, well, give me the test for Swahili. I'll be fine. Um, yeah. No, but a, a very capable service. And, and I mean, I'm I'm out now, so it doesn't really matter what I think, but great partners for the United States. And, and I think we're equally good partners uh, in the other direction. So um, I mean, you guys are the cool kids at the table, the Canadians Yeah, and are. it's got to be a lot more complicated for yeah. as an American dealing with counterintelligence. You think so? Why? Is, well, 
Do you think people just don't care about Canada? I think there's I think the United States obviously is under a lot more threat than Canada is. Canada, quite frankly, I think we're our own worst enemy and we will be for a long time, but hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I think the United States shares that and it's I mean it's it's easy to see the United States as the 800-pound gorilla, but the way to deal with an 800-pound gorilla is to step on its foot and trip it, and it'll fall over. So I guess my, my, my point is this, that the technique is the same. You're, you're playing offensive line. You understand the difference between the high school game, the college game, and the, and yeah, the pro yeah. game, but the technique is the same. And, and the reality of it is, as a Western country, Canada, the US, you know, even Western Europe, everybody's playing the same game. And everybody is, is equally capable. I mean, there, there are extraordinary people in all agencies, and there are people where you look at them and you go, why the hell are you here in all, in all agencies? I, with hotels. It's yeah. funny because I'm I'm not ashamed to be Canadian, but I look at I, I sometimes question some of the things you like. So around the time you're talking about being in New York and working in counterintelligence and things like that, Canada was busy having our largest company get gutted by Chinese spies, Nortel, mm. Nortel, which was at one point was like, it was insane. It was like a quarter or a fifth or something like that of our stock exchange's value. And China came in, they systematically stole over years all the technology and used that technology to create Huawei. Yeah. Which there's a, everybody knows about Huawei and Nortel doesn't exist anymore. So I don't know. Like, I think it's yeah. it's good that we had some part where we, we had some guys who were good at what they were doing, but. Which ones? <laughs> yeah. It, where were they that year? Yeah, yeah. We, we really got caught with our pants down you know yeah so. and but that has nothing to do with being canadian that that's happened in the u.s as well um and it's happened around the world as well and and so i think it's a mistake to say well this happened because we suck <laughs> no just because you lose doesn't mean you suck it means you had a bad game and it means you need to get the fuck and, up and, and, and i'm in alberta and play i'm in alberta i'm not saying we lost because we suck <laughs> Yeah. I'm in Alberta. I'm saying we lost because they, they suck. suck. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm Western Canadian, Scott. We're fine. Yeah, yeah. that's different. We there's, carry the country for fuck's sake. There's, there's a lot here I clearly don't understand, <laughs> and it's going to take a hell of a lot more than one glass of alcohol to get me there. Yeah, there's but a I'm reason willing, we don't speak French. I'm, I'm willing to commit. I'm willing to commit. We're not too dumb to speak French. We just don't <laughs> choose speak not to. Yeah. Just choose not, not to. It's a choice. through 9-11? Yeah. So I was in New York for my first tour from 96 to 2003. I was on the ground for September wow. 11th. I was actually, it was extraordinary. I mean, I got to New York and, and, and it's funny because a lot of people for, forget this or don't know it because it's, it's history now, but I actually got to New York about a month after the TWA 800 crash. And so I was one of the 
line people during that investigation and was out at the Grumman facility where they were putting the plane back together. And so I, I sort of thought, and I was on the, I did a, a, a tour a week out on one of the trawlers dragging for pieces of the uh, of the plane towards the end of it. And so I, I thought I understood a major investigation. Then this happened. And I was, I was standing on Broadway in front of the 26th Federal Bla- uh, Plaza building, which is about six blocks away from the World Trade Center, when the first plane flew over over and and hit the north tower um and i just i i remember the sound of wow that's really low and then the sound of the impact it was like uh you know what a timpani is a, a kettle drum yep, in an yep, orchestra yep, oh yeah. it was sort of like if someone took a sledgehammer and just bashed the drum face in this just hollow hollow sounding impact of that plane hitting the building and then uh i was i was away at my car getting my gear together when the second plane hit the south tower and then I had gone down towards the site, taken a bunch of pictures, and was meeting up with some other people who just happened to be there. I was in front of the federal post office, which is right at Church and Vesey, about a block and a half away when the South Tower collapsed. Wow. And I was one of the people that was sort of running north out of the cloud. Um, wow. So, yeah, when, I was I was the there for that. Plane hit. When the first plane hit, did you immediately think this is a terrorist attack or did you immediately think this is something else? I had no idea what it was. And so I knew it was something significant and I thought this is this is not great and and I did something that that a lot of people think will think is strange, but this is what I did. I the reason I was in front of the building is cuz I I'd, I'd run into a friend of mine who was also an FBI agent, but I was coming back from getting my breakfast, my egg sandwich. So I got this this bag of of breakfast in my hand and I thought, you know what? If if I don't eat this now, I'm probably not going to eat all day. So I need <laughs> no, to make totally sure I got, yeah. I, I I need to make sure I got some food in my stomach. And and I was right. I I didn't eat until I got home like at 9 that night. Um wow. so I went in to 26 Federal Plaza and my office cubicle was on the 25th floor. And if you went to the right corner of the building, you could, it would look straight at the World Trade Center. So I did that and I saw this hole in the side of the building and the, the fire and everything. And, and I remember thinking, it, it's it's really the only time in my life that I can really think of where it was surreal. I mean, I I knew what I was I was I knew what I was looking at, but it, it looked like a bad special effect from a B movie. It didn't look it didn't look real. I mean, I knew it was real, but it was just. And I thought, yeah, this this is a problem. That this this that something's something's going on here, and this yeah, this is bad. And so I ate. I went and drew out camera because, and and I'm going to sound like a a guy that saw a UFO but doesn't have the picture, right? So I'd taken a, a couple of classes in photography from the bureau, and I had a whole camera kit, but for some reason I didn't throw it in my car that day. So I went down to the photo lab and I drew a camera, and I I thought, you know what, what I can do is is take some pictures. So I, I went to my car, got my camera gear while I was doing that. The second plane hit. Um, I went back down towards the the World Trade Center site, and I'm taking pictures. And the the oddest image that day was after the the South Tower collapsed. So there's just one World Trade Center standing, and this empty hole in the sky. The the camera that I drew jammed after the first roll of film, so I couldn't open it up. Um, oh wow! So so I don't have that picture, right? It's like the UFI. My camera jammed, and I 
I was standing right there and I couldn't take the picture. But the, the image that I remember is just seeing that empty hole in the sky where the South Tower should be and it was gone. And then the North Tower collapsed and yeah, and, and I knew everything's going to be different now. Everything's yeah. and it really be and it really has been right. It's yeah. it, and it's it, funny. Like my daughter, my daughter was born in two thousand three, so two years after that, and I don't even think I could explain to her mm-hmm. right, like what flying was like no. when I was younger, or going to the US, yeah, stuff yep. like that. How different it was. How we looked at other people and, and things like that. So be interesting. I know we don't not to, but like it's like the pandemic will be similar, right? It's like I how we don't know how it's going to change the world, but it's not going to be the same world it was before. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, yeah that's, and that's, it's I wonder. And, yeah, it's a funny thing. I mean, we all st- start sounding like old people, right? That's not the way it was before. <laughs> yeah, when we the, were kids. And I really think you're right, Jen. I mean, big things impact the way you live. And, and the, the horrible thing and the great thing is change. And I think there are a lot of lessons that we can take from change. And the way I define change is when the um, when the unthinkable becomes unremarkable. And then oh, yeah. when, when the un- unremarkable becomes unassailable. That's how I process change. And, you know, the, the notion that you couldn't, you know, drive up to an airport, walk in and, and, you know, meet your family at the gate. That was normal to us in, in the early nineties. And that's, that's no longer normal. It's unthinkable that we would do that, but that's the oh, way yeah. it was. Yeah. You look at, you know, going out in public without a face mask. And I remember seeing those old 1918 flu things like, oh, that must have been weird. And and now, you know, I traveled not much, but once or twice during the pandemic. And it's just, it's so annoying to be on an airplane, having worn this freaking mask for six hours straight. And my lips are getting chapped. And, and it's, it's just physically uncomfortable to me. And I'm screaming inside my head, why am I doing this? And for most people now, it's, you know, stay away. Away from me, it's it's normal. The only difference that I see, and and Jen, you you give me a reality check on this for for September 11th. All of those follow-on impacts, those were intentional by the people who did this. What Bin Laden and and Al Baghdadi and all of these guys who wanted to impact the West, in my opinion, they specifically wanted to change the way that we live. And so they may not have specifically planned that we're going to make it a big hassle to get on an airplane, but they have certainly changed the way we live by running those planes into buildings. With the pandemic, I don't have enough evidence to demonstrate that anybody intended to change the way we live but yes well, David. Well, well since we've opened that up it's funny because we theory, yeah. it's funny because we don't we normally don't talk about this we actually by the way this this is what happens to our podcast is Scott, we, you are honorary Canadian yeah. you said sorry without really meaning to be yeah. sorry we, we, we have a game plan for the podcast and we end up somewhere else completely yeah. different I, I love this by the way this is I'm, I'm coming back oh yeah uh, absolutely. I don't know if you're absolutely. inviting me but I don't give a shit I'm just gonna tap in so you were saying that the, one of the biggest differences was there was you know uh uh, bin Laden and they intended to change the way the West did things. Yeah. Do you honestly think that there's because I'm I don't know one way or the other. I don't know one way or the other. But I look at I look around and I see what's happening and I'm not a conspiracy theorist and I believe in COVID and I know what the I know it's a real thing. But I think there is a people taking advantage of it to change the way the world works. I mean, when you look at online shopping and stuff, like I mean, things have fundamentally changed there. Well, I thought the U.S. was avoiding it because the the one thing reality for us, Scott, is oh my god, like the, the governments at all levels right now are spending so much money. Oh yeah, and granted, probably arguably because they need to, 
right? Yes. That you know they're trying to protect us from a lot of things, but also sneaking in controls. And they've been caught a couple times. And I think that there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been caught. I, I see, despite uh, having a bit of a different political system. I mean, I, I think you guys are starting to get in a little deep with the debt too, and that's going to change. <laughs> wow, like, that's going to be insane. Right? You're now a candidate for understatement of the year. <laughs> I don't um, think. Yeah. yeah I, Go ahead. Say, before we go into the pandemic, I just want to wrap up the 9-11 and, the, and kind of link it back oh, to the Oh, all right. This is what there. Jen does. She's yeah. like... <laughs> just hang on. Let's, before we move on. Just, so just, what is your... For the record, Jen, I love yeah. you. You're great. Don't stop. Thank you. <laughs> I think you need like... approval of some American <laughs> people. I'm going to pay for that ego, over and yeah. over and over. Yeah. It's getting larger and larger. Yeah. Uh, just before we wrap up with 9-11, like, what are your thoughts on the... Because I was we had a conspiracy theorist on here not that long ago, and I was looking at the stats on 9-11. It was like over half of the Americans believed it to be be a conspiracy theory to some extent. And obviously you were there on the ground. Obviously you have much more knowledge than any person. Like what are your thoughts on those people that sort of peddle this conspiracy? Um, I, I love that question because it's really, really complex. And yeah. so I can, uh, I think the, the way that I want to answer that question, I was going to say the best way, but I don't know if it's best because I, I, I just love your protocol of, of, of a drink um, because I, <laughs> yeah, I, right I don't now. know yeah. what's best at this point, but yeah. um Remember at the beginning of the day that I'm a trial attorney and I'm a prosecutor. And and so just because something sounds like conspiracy theory doesn't mean that it is if there's evidence. You know, and you're not paranoid if they are actually after you. It's that sort of thing. <laughs> um and and so I don't claim to know more than other people about this, but but I was on the pile. Mm -hmm. I, I was I was at Ground Zero in New York several times over several weeks, and so I I know what I saw, and it, it's interesting. I, I have a very very dear friend who um, is a conspiracy theorist, and we all have one, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and I love this guy, and I agree with him on a lot of stuff. But you know, mm -hmm. his thing was, you know, they um, you know they 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 say that you know, all these cell phone calls came from airplanes and a friend of mine was on an airplane recently. And, you know, when you're that high up, your cell phone doesn't work. And I said, yeah, when you're at 35,000 feet, your cell phone doesn't work. But all these planes were at a thousand feet. And at that yeah. altitude, I was just gonna say, your at cell phone- feet, You also fly over buildings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and his thing was, you know, they, they, they have all these pictures and they say all this stuff, you know, at ground zero, but it was just a pile of dust. There were no mm -hmm. bodies. There was, there was a pile of dust. And I'm like, I I'm happy to show you my pictures. And there I have the negatives. I have the photos. And what you saw on TV is exactly what I saw on the ground. And, and so, yeah, this thing happened. I, I can't prove that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon, but I'm pretty sure they did. Yeah. Um, because it, it, and, and this comes back around to my natural skepticism and it, it's, it's too hard to keep a secret. The only way to keep a secret is not to tell anybody. It, it really is. It's I don't know hard. who you support publicly, but if it was a conspiracy theory, I'm sure Donald Trump would have told somebody. <laughs> yeah. that, that's I can't imagine him keeping his mouth shut. <laughs> well, that's and, my knock on most conspiracy theories. <laughs> like if the government's conspiring to do something, yeah. the government's just not that competent. No, somebody's no, going to leak. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah. so I'll, I'll reveal my take on government. Government sucks at everything. <laughs> there, there, there is nothing that the government does 
that the private sector can't do better. And, and I, I can give you examples. And, and I understand the, the, the U.S. better than I understand Canada. But And, and this is really going to pick a scab. But this is a test for you guys about whether you cut me off or not. <laughs> oh, no, we won't. You know, let's, let's talk about healthcare and socialized medicine. My optic in the U.S. is if we can't get the Veterans Administration to take care of our military guys, then why would we have the government take care of the rest of us. If if the VA isn't the admiration of the world from a healthcare standpoint, then why would we have the government take care of all of us? And and it's not. It's horrific. Actually, can I answer that? Because I actually have an answer for that. Oh, please. I would love an answer to that. It's because I used to be a general manager of a courtyard, a courtyard by merit. And we, I remember we used to have a few uh, guys come up who'd stay with us from the U.S. And they were really like hardcore Republicans. Mm-hmm. And to the, and this was when Obama was running for re-election. And I am the only man in Canada, you can look it up. I'm the only man in Canada that supported Mitt Romney over, <laughs> over Barack Obama. I got to so go. I got to go. Like, well, no, I mean, I mean. That I mean, was then. I hope yeah. you've learned. Yeah. Well, well part, of it, part of it is because if there's five guys who believe in something, I'll be like, I don't agree. Yeah. Uh, but, there but there we, you we, go with the LDS thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We started talking about healthcare and, and they were kind of the same the same way. They said, oh, I, we don't, you know, I don't agree with it for this. I said, but that's because a lot of people from the U.S. looking at Canada don't un- have a fundamental misunderstanding of how we look at healthcare, mm. just like a lot of Canadians look at the U.S. and have a misunderstanding of how we look at your, what do you call it? Like your towards guns. Mm. Really towards yeah. guns. Yeah, yeah. True. Is, is if you're Canadian, there's a not, first off, I, I think I kind of hinted at it before, but I am a, in the past couple of years, I've become a really big believer that Canada is a concept. It's not a country. So Canada in a lot of ways doesn't exist. And a lot of people think it does. And, and there's people in different parts of Canada that would disagree with that. But this could be a whole hour of me explaining why. <laughs> but fundamentally, our country was created. One of the fundamental tenets of our country was the exploitation of the West. And I live in the West. And yeah, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. So I won't go into it. So we, when you look at things that make you a Canadian, one of the things that makes you a Canadian is a fundamental belief that we have a right to health care. Mm. So when you, uh, and just like in the U.S., a lot of Americans, I don't know how you feel, I'm, uh, but of a lot of Americans, it's in your constitution, you have a right to own guns. A lot of Canadians look at that as being bizarre. Yeah. I think a lot of Americans look at our belief that we have a right to health care as equally as bizarre. And I think that that's where some of it comes from, is whether the system is perfect, whether it could be better. And I think we are, like, we spend an enormous amount of money on health care. So it's not free, mm-hmm. right? We get taxed heavily for it. It is an incredibly inefficient system. I was going to say, there's drawbacks to free health care. <laughs> There is. There are drawbacks. It is heavily abused. It is abused both by people who provide the service and people who use the service. Yeah. And it is an incredible drain on our country's ability to thrive. Mm -hmm. And it will be for a long time and it's only ever going to get worse. Yeah. But that said, the idea of telling Canadians that the government exists for a reason other than providing health care, we would say you're crazy. Yeah. So in a, in a lot of ways to us, the inefficiencies in the system, the problems it creates, all these other kinds of things, nobody in Canada worries about getting sick. No. I mean, we worry about dying and then yeah. being ill and stuff like that, but we don't worry about, and we can't fathom the no. idea that, you know, there's a huge percentage of a, of a population that would 
be ruined if they yeah. came down with a serious disease. And I think that's the difference between the two of us. And really, when you're looking at our country right now and how horribly failed it is, <laughs> one of the things, there's two things that hold us together, like two things. There's healthcare and hockey, and that's it. And hockey. But that is the what about only football. What about that's all I can. That's no, all I have. we're selling football. We're selling what up to the rock. Crystal head, yeah, uh, crystal head. Vodka. Well, that's that's for some of us. For some of us, <laughs> but really, hockey and healthcare. That's what we have. Yeah. If you take somebody in Shakutami, somebody in Vancouver, somebody in uh, I'm trying to think of a place up north, but I can't. So what does the U.S. have? Boil it down. Banff is up north, isn't it? Banff. No, no Banff, Banff is way south that's of like us. Like right next door. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, yeah. Banff is south of you? Yeah. Yeah, we are the oh. furthest north city with a population of a million yeah yeah that's our pride and joy yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Banff is really far south. i used yeah. to i used to live just outside of Banff. we'll meet you in Banff, scott and we'll do I'm, another podcast I'm, there I'm, <laughs> yeah well i'm revealed i uh i'm gonna have to get my map out and and do some research um, well, you're an american we're used to that whenever i go to america they're like oh where are you from i'm like you know what i'm not gonna fucking play this game western canada that <laughs> really stings but it you know i i i uh i i, I acknowledge the legitimacy of the shot um <laughs> <laughs> yeah they'll be like is that next to Vancouver so I'm, I'm like you know what I am <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm a I'm a skeptic and if, if if somebody wants me to accept something I expect them to to demonstrate it to me I you know proof I think I think people should be thoughtful and should have opinions and be open to being convinced. I think part of the problems of today are that people decide stuff and they're not open to being convinced. But I think the, oh, other, part of the, the, the other part of the problem is that people aren't skeptical enough. They they look at what's on the screen and they accept it as truth. And I think the, the things that I would pick with what you just said, David, is I, I'm not I'm not convinced of some of the facts that you have. It's an interesting thing and it's it's I think it's important to discuss and it's important to to pick apart what what the fact pattern is and and I'll I'll give you two things to return fire on. That you know the the first is analogizing firearms with healthcare. The interesting thing about firearms is the government doesn't buy firearms for you. The government doesn't tax the people, provide a firearm fund, and you can go into a place and say, I want that one, and they give it to you. We a hundred we a hundred percent thought you did. Yeah. <laughs> I'm and, just kidding. I'm just and, kidding. And, and it's 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 interesting and scary, but no, if you here in the US the right is if you want to dig into your own wallet and go and buy a gun, you generally can unless you're a loony or a felon. And the the notion that we just let anybody walk into a gun shop, I've bought enough guns to know that that flat out isn't true. And you can you can demonstrate all of these data points of people who have done really horrific things with guns. And I can demonstrate 10 times the number of things that aren't in the news where a person with a gun stopped people from getting killed. So that's that, that that's my, my point number one, and we can debate that. The other, the other issue is the notion that a person in the United States can become fundamentally sick and won't get healthcare is flat out not true as well. If you come down with some sort of horrific cancer or you get hit by a car, you go to a hospital and you're going to get care. You, you, you are. So the the notion that we have to have a publicly funded system for people who can't pay for the care that they need in the United States, I, I think is is demonstrably false. Now the the question becomes how should people pay for health care? And and 
my question is, well, how do people pay for food? We don't give people food. You're going to die a lot quicker if you don't have food than if you don't have health care. And yeah, we're going to a point in Canada where uh, yeah, we're going to be giving people food, I think. But. Well, and, and that's the problem, right? Because now I'm going to go straight to Russia and I'm going to go straight to bread lines and everything's going to be equal except for the people in political power. And so the question then becomes, who gets the good stuff? Is it the people who have money or the people who won the popularity contest? And by popularity contest, I mean who got voted into office because Mm -hmm. that's the popularity contest. What I think is interesting is, you know, you have one opinion, if you will, and I have another opinion. And I think if we talk to other people, we get other opinions. I think your opinion's wrong, just for the record. But my opinion, okay. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. Who who are you talking to? You you didn't specify. No, she's no. Granted, it's me. I just want to say you said David was wrong in such an eloquent way that I'm going to listen back and like your facts don't support what you're saying. Yeah. uh, Just so I can use that in our day to day life. I I could see that the smile Jen got when you said that. I'm I'm falling in love. <laughs> at some point, because the other thing is we where we live, we live in a province called Alberta, which is not similar in a lot of ways to the rest of Canada. Mm. And we are we have become incredibly unpopular, I think, even with our own population over the way they are. But I think this is the one place in Canada where we would be willing to wander into some of the shades of gray. In other words, when you say that taking on a slightly more American style of healthcare. And especially taking more of an American attitude towards firearms and things like that. Alberta is the one place where they would have that conversation. And I would think that if we got somebody, you know, people like you and people like me and people like people of all sorts of the spectrum, when we said, okay, we need you guys to come up with something you can all live together, what that would look like, mm-hmm. right? Like if you, if you stop talking in absolutes, because I think you're right. One of the tragedies of our time right now, and the pandemic has shown that, is there's a huge portion of the population and they're the most vocal portion of the population that gets excited when they find something to be intolerant about. Yeah, totally. Right? And all we like to do is shit talk each other and then See, see, see that I I really disagree with you about that. I don't you're think just saying that for Jen. Maybe you're not on Twitter, Scott, because that's where David <laughs> lives, and that, that's what he hears on Twitter. Yeah, you, you, you so, think that there's so I'm I'm the guest here, and I'm going to claim guest prerogative for the first and only time. Um, okay, it's to, all yours to say this. What what I quarrel with you about is the notion that it is a huge percentage of the population. I think it's oh, okay. agreed. I yeah. think it's a vocal part of the population. Yeah, you know what? You know I what? Think I think the I minority. I think most people are like me. I, I am like my bulldog. I got this beautiful, my my wife and I, we have this bulldog called Emma and she wakes up to eat and then fart and then she goes back to sleep. And that's pretty much me. That's Jen. Oh my God. I wish it was Jen. Yeah. And, and so the, I, I think the, the challenge that we have is we were inundated by what's on the screen. And we yeah. think that since there's so much of it, it's what most people think. And I actually don't think it's what most people think. I think most people just don't want to be fucked with. Most people want to do what they want to do which doesn't offend anybody. Mm-hmm. They just want to do what they want to do. Well, and, I think most and, people just don't have the energy to engage with those people. You know what I'm saying? Right, because those people. Be, Who has right, the energy because, to engage with that? Right. Most people don't have the energy to vent on social media. And so the minority that's loud has an advantage because people start thinking, wow, if I'm seeing this all the time, then that's the way that most people feel. And and I really don't think it is. The problem that I have is I'm violating my own rule. I can't prove this to you, but it, 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 it's my opinion. 
You've earned credibility during the last hour. I believe you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're Jen's favorite person. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, okay. this is wow. this is the time. Oh, wait. Jen just put her hand up because we were talking about the pandemic, and we were. I wanted to lead back into. No, that. I do want to lead back into it, but I have to say, what what's the one thing I always say? I say we're getting short on time. So, and it's great. We haven't even touched leadership. So we're definitely going to have to have you back to talk about leadership. But I would, I really like what we were starting to talk about. (laughs) We're in love. Yeah. 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 Finally, we could talk about this. But anyway, let's, let's go back to the pandemic, which is funny because we normally don't talk about it. So I just want to talk. Can I ask my question? Yeah, please do. Okay. So going back to the pandemic, so you sort of said that you obviously believe Corona is a thing, like you believe that. I guess the conspiracy comes into where does it come from? Like, is it just accidentally, you know? That's not my conspiracy, but we'll answer this one first. Yeah, like just, or is it, you know, perpetuated by some group of person to create what's happened? She means China. <laughs> yeah. So I was the- trying to be millennial about it, but sure. Actually, I've heard governments in the US as well. I've heard labs in the US have done it as well. So Yeah. And so my, again, remember, attorney, prosecutor, spy chaser. Yes, facts, facts, facts. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, skeptic. So when I'm yeah. looking at a fact pattern and I don't have all the facts, then I'm not going to make a value judgment yet. But I'm going to be keenly aware that I don't have facts. And I can infer from how difficult it is to find the facts that somebody doesn't want me to know facts. So when I look at the pandemic and I've got a wet market right next to a uh, lab and I've got a government that thinks in terms of a hundred years instead of in terms of five years, which is the Chinese government. And I've got a World Health Organization that appears to be doing what the Chinese government wants and is not getting the access yes, to I eat. agree with that. My challenge is I'm going to ask the question, what is it that the government of China doesn't want us to know? And there are a couple of alternatives. There's not one answer. There are a couple of alternatives. It's they really screwed up and they either let the wet market or the lab or, you know, somebody tripped and fell in a pile of poo and got this thing and it spread everywhere. (laughs) There's something they don't want us to know. Or this is the prelude. This is a test. Does this work? Yeah. Or I've heard that for sure. We're we're gonna well, do this yeah. and we're going to we're gonna change the way the world functions. We need this stressor so that we can do this other stuff. And the challenge that I have is I don't have enough facts to pick one of those alternatives or even to know if there's yeah. more alternatives. But what I do know is I don't have enough facts. And I'm 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 a guy that fundamentally believes that from a risk management standpoint and from a decision making standpoint, you need to be able to make decisions based on 70, 65, 65% facts. I mean, before I was a lawyer and before I was a prosecutor, I was a climbing guy. The first job that I had was that there wasn't pulling weeds in my parents' backyard was with the Boy Scouts. And I was on a summer camp staff. I was a climbing guide on a summer camp staff and we guided on Mount Rainier. And Mount Rainier is about 100 miles south of Seattle. If you that's if awesome. you, yeah, it, it was a great job. If you Google pictures of what Mount Rainier looks like from Seattle, it's not photoshopped. I mean, this is a mountain that's 4,500 kilometers or 4,500 meters high. It's 14,410 feet high. And it sits on a mountain range that is only about 6,500 
feet high. So it's this huge stratovolcano. And it's where North American climbers go to train for Everest. The Whitaker brothers uh, train there. And I was a guide there and I was 15 years old when I was a guide on that mountain. I slept on the summit when I was 17 years old and I climbed it in the winter when I was 19 years old. And that is my version of risk management. And I can't remember the point I was going to make. <laughs> Pandemic, not enough facts. Welcome to the Lucid Conversational <laughs> Podcast. Yeah, yeah, I remember how you said your story was much like the rest of us. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. So when you're when you're climbing, particularly when you're climbing in a uh, you're doing alpine climbing at altitude on glaciers, you have to make judgment calls, um, and you need to make judgment calls based on very little. Do you, do you go left? Do you go right? Will the route go? Will it not go? And I learned that art form when I was a teenager. Being the key to succeeding in that environment is to really understand when you don't know enough. And when you don't know enough, that's when you stop. You, that's when you, David makes up shit. Yeah, yeah you, 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 oh, don't, it, you, you don't stop I, until you don't I know I have enough. a counterpoint to this. Because I, I love it. hiking as well. No, no, I know you're, you're you're definitely talking about the right way of doing things. But I, I love hiking as well, and I hike at a place called Kananaskis primarily, which is if you know where Banff is. So Banff is in. <laughs> he is, doesn't. We've already established. I know, that, but I'm just going to yeah. say it's in it's in southwestern Alberta. Um, just outside of Banff National Park is a town called Canmore that I used to live in, and then roughly south of Canmore for is an area called Kananaskis, and it's a it's the best it's the greatest place in the world. It's got a, some amazing mountains, and that's where I like to go hike. And it was funny because I do the opposite of you. I get myself into situations where I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> and then I don't have, I can't do the risk management. I have to be like, I'm going to try this. <laughs> and if this doesn't work. If I die, today's my I day. I guess I die. Yeah, today's yeah. my day. <laughs> and it was classic. So my girlfriend is a wonderful lady named Carol Ann. And we were hiking. And it was, we, we the fundamental mistake we made is we went camping. We got to Kananaskis. Drank heavily. Uh, we actually didn't drink that heavily in this. Because we drink when we get to the summit. We usually have a little party when we get to the summit stuff and then stumble down. <laughs> But we were we were hiking That's a gorge. We, there was we get there to the campground. It's like mid June. There's no snow. Everything looks great. It's warm out. So we go hiking. And as we get halfway up this gorge, we realize as we walk out into this open area on on a really really steep part of the gorge, it's mud. It's all mud. And I was leading. I was way ahead of her. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm going to fall down the gorge, and I'm going to die. So, so she's. I'm like telling. Her, I'm like, Caroline, stop! Don't don't come out here. Don't come out here. And I saw there was like a little tree kind of growing out. And I'm like, if I make it to the tree, I'll be okay. So I took my backpack off, and like literally, it's like it was so steep. I was like leaning against it. And she's like, What are you doing? And I said, I can't. I got to run over to that tree. I said, This whole thing is going to let go. So she's like, Don't. It's going to fall all the way down. And I'm like, no, I'm going to throw my backpack. It's going to hit that. Tr- There's two trees, actually. It's going to hit those two trees. And then I'm going to kind of skid down to it. But I don't I don't feel I'm worried that I'll bang my backpack on the ground and I'll fall. So she's like, don't. So I'm like, relax. So I take my backpack off. I throw it down the thing. It hits the ground. It bounces. It was like watching a, uh, a guy kick a field goal. It mm-hmm. goes up, it goes over the trees where they had grown <laughs> together and continue to go all the way down yeah. the gorge. And then, so, and then I watch my backpack. Fall down the mountain. Yeah, fall down the mountain and, and land in the, the thing like, like, a, like a, you know, I don't know, like five, 600 meters below me. And uh, then I had to, what was I going to do? What was I going to do? I wasn't smart like you ahead of time. <laughs> Where I'd, I'd measured the risk, I put myself in this set situation. Anyway, as you could tell, I when I ran out, when I let go and skidded down to the trees, I got there, I got fine. 
And it was funny because we ended up going down and the swell water bottle that was in my backpack. I lost a bunch of things, but I got my backpack back. I got my swell water bottle Thank back. God, and that's it's just expensive. It yeah. is. And it's my pride and joy now because it's all beat up and, <laughs> and dented and things like that. Uh, and it's fantastic. But yeah, and, and it, incidentally, the where we got into trouble, where we weren't, we didn't manage the risk properly. We get back to the campground. And we're telling this lady the story like, holy God, it was so muddy. She's like, well, there was snow two days ago. <laughs> it never dawned on us that the where we were hiking, because you're not supposed to hike there if there's snow. It's it's too unstable and it's dangerous. It never dawned on us that it suddenly got warm. The snow literally left a few hours ago. We show up there. We're like, hey, look, it's dry. Everything's good. <laughs> oh so I appreciate your ability to hike Mount Rainier and measure yeah. the risk. David and me. I assess risk very similarly. We jump off the mountain and figure out how the fuck to land yeah. while we're going yeah. down. Yeah, so you're, you're you're, you're you're the kind of people that we used to rescue all the time. <laughs> I always say to David, I don't know if you listen to the podcast, but I'm pretty sure that's how he's going to meet his end is one day he's just going to fall off a mountain. You know? no, I don't want to. I'll be whether glad to. Carol Ann pushes him or not, I don't know yet, but he's just going to fall off the mountain. Yeah. All right. So to summarize, you think with regards to the pandemic that you just don't have enough information, but you think that there's probably- But you have your questions. But there's more information out there that we just don't have access to. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, the- the scary thing or the the sort of the holy shit thing is is the notion of you know was this an accident and that's bad was this intentional that's bad um yeah. and and sort of the what do we do now i mean what do we really yeah. do now but how do you feel about the idea that governments are taking advantage of this now well hang on just one second before we get there because oh, the other sorry, thing Jen. too i just want to say is like even if it was an accident let's say let's say it's an accident and the story you've been presented is absolutely true the problem is now people are going to say let's make this intentional next time, right? It's like if this was accidentally on purpose, like let's do it with more intention next time, right? Well, it's it it's certainly instructive in the notion that, yeah. um, you know. The notion it, that you can take out as many people as you have with this one virus. It's like who isn't going to try to create that in a lab? Well, there, there are certainly entities and governments and people that are learning from this. And what they're learning isn't good for the average person. Um, and there's also the notion of never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. And the, the concern is that if you're looking at a situation and you go, wow, this, this is bad and we need to solve this. If your attitude is this is bad and we need to solve this, it's very difficult for you to understand that maybe there's a person out there who wants this, who wants oh, yeah. to exploit it. whether they yeah. created it on purpose or it's a wonderful thing that fell into their lap. Yeah. That, that that allows them to do what they want to do, and you know, and and this is this is the point of freedom, right? You know, freedom is letting people do what they want, and this this impacts the topic of freedom. This impacts leadership. This impacts a lot of things. But it's it's the notion that if you're not me, how how sort of chapped do I become if you do what you want to do instead of what I want you to do? Yeah, and I see a lot of that. There there are actually a lot of people out there who like bad things because bad things allow them to exert control. If there's this bad thing, now I can start cracking out orders and that's good for me because if I issue orders, then I feel in control. I'm not necessarily making things better, but I am not really thinking about whether they're better. I'm thinking about whether I feel better. 
What has shocked me and what continues to shock me, and I see this on social media, is how many people are angry at the government and demanding more oppression. And, and that's the one thing that I never thought I'd oh, see. Oh, you mean more restrictions? More, res- more restrictions. Yeah. Well, like, like restrictions when, like restrictions. And I, sometimes I look at these things and I yeah. wonder how they could possibly be real. Well, I guess what's the temperature in the US? Because I know there's a lot of states that have sort of pulled off all restrictions. And so is there is there that sense of oppression there as well? So I'm, I'm going to be a jackass now. And, and ask you a completely different question. It took you a fucking long time to get here, Scott, uh-huh. but welcome. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you, you, I like, my dear. I really do. <laughs> are, you, are you guys Star Wars fans at all? Oh, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I yeah, betcha. Yeah. yeah. So the can't remember which movie it is. It's one of the last three, but it's Amidala saying, so, so this is how freedom falls to thunderous applause. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And that's what it is. And it's, it's a terrible, terrible trade-off. You know, people at some level want to be free, but they want to be taken care of more. And it is frightening to me. And and I don't get frightened much. I mean, I have guns. I know how to use them. I don't get frightened much. But the notion that a person will trade their freedom for a sense of security. And so willingly. Yeah. And and, and willingly. And and demand it be taken. Begging. Like begging. Like they, yeah, take care of me. Take care of me. It's, 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 it's what children do, but it's not what adults do. I think. Literally in Alberta, there are a group of people, uh, and uh, maybe it's not big, but it's vocal. I apologize for David interrupting so much. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, it's just because I'm passionate about this. Uh, I try to be in the closet about it, but they're, they're like, (laughs) It is like the government is failing us because they are not forcing us to stay in our homes. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that gets me every time is like, it's like, oh, oh no, Jen's interrupting. Well, it's like, it's like, well, um, they're not doing their job because they're not making us stay home. It's like, well, then just stay fucking home. Like, nobody's saying you have to go out. If you feel safe staying home, stay home. It's truly remarkable, right? It's like, I don't have to wear a mask unless the government tells me. It's like, really? Are you stupid? Make your own decision. And and what's truly frightening is there there is no such thing as security. There's the illusion of security, but life Life is a full contact sport. Life is dangerous. If you're smart, you have a fire extinguisher in your house. Why? And guns. Why? The reason you have a fire extinguisher in your house is because you know that there is a gap where really bad things can happen between the time the pan on your stove burns and the time the fire department shows up. And that time is your time to do something about it. And there are people who will say a gun is like a fire extinguisher. It's just, it bridges you until the police get there. And and I happen to agree with that, but that misses the point. The point is the only person who takes care of you is you. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing, but it requires you to take personal responsibility for your life. And if what you're doing is saying the government should do that, you're punting, you're, you're not choosing. You know, freedom, freedom is an interesting thing because freedom is not the concept of, you know, you know, your right to punch ends at my nose as a famous, I can't remember which one it was, that's U.S. Supreme Court justice says, and and I, I think it's flat out wrong. If I truly believe in freedom, I won't even throw that punch because if I believe in freedom, one of the most important parts of freedom for me is freedom for you. Freedom means that you intentionally and aggressively pay your own bills and clean up your own messes. Because if I take a dump in the middle of the street and I leave it there, 
I'm making somebody else clean up after me. I am imposing my will on somebody else, and that's not freedom. So freedom is other regarding. It's not self-regarding if you really understand what freedom is. And 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 I think that's great. I I think that's one of the biggest differences between the the American perspective and maybe, if you will, the Canadian perspective or the Canadian perspective as I see it. Vocally on Twitter. Vocally on Twitter, but under the current (laughs) government. Yeah. Right? Where they... The, the the running, whatever you want to call it, the running, whatever, it seems to be that freedom is accepting what the government is telling you to do. Mm-hmm. And it and it has nothing to do with our personal responsibility to each other. Because I think if as if as a country or if as a society or whatever, we, we accepted that, we would be doing a lot better than we are. Yeah, nobody See, I, I, I don't think that's a, a Canadian-U.S. dichotomy. I think what you see more and more in the U.S. It is exactly that. And, and and I don't know how to get my brain around it. The only way that I can process it is sort of a child adult dichotomy but you you see people in the United States who who want free stuff and they don't understand that there's no such thing as free there's exactly. only exactly. there's only such thing as paid by other people mm-hmm. and when you're a kid you get stuff paid by other people you get stuff paid by your by your parents but when you're actually a formed adult in order to be a free adult you pay your own bills and yep. it's remarkable to me how many people are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s who don't have this understanding that that freedom means you pay your own bills, you clean up your own messes because you wouldn't put that burden on somebody else. And from a human nature standpoint, I get it. It's it's easier if somebody else does everything and all you can do, all you need to do is sit there and complain. But what you're trading is your freedom for the illusion of security. At the end of the day, if you want to be safe, you have to take your own safety into your own hands. Because unless the government assigns you a personal bodyguard, there's always going to be that gap between the bad thing that happens to you and the government response. Perfect. Always. And on that note, That's we it. are at time. So oh, we didn't even talk about really sucks. I got. <laughs> I, I remember I told <laughs> you I told you it's going to go by fast. I know. Yeah. Well, that, but that's good because we can, we can keep this going. So the uh, it's funny because we never talked about leadership. Yeah. We never talked about the the course that you're putting together, which is fantastic. We haven't talked about anything, so we'll have to have. You. <laughs> We've talked about a lot, but yeah, not, yeah. You know. yeah. But this is the beauty of the podcast yeah. is we talk about things that we don't intend to. So <laughs> I am I am completely a part of your madness now. And uh, I really look forward to the next time we can do this. I really do. This, this is absolutely. Yeah. Time. We'll do it again. We'll do it again soon. 100%. Cause the, uh, you've um, got the scheduling app. Just book yourself in there, Scott. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, you've got the Calendly, the Calendly link. Just put yourself in there. Yeah. You're going to regret that, but I'm in. Thank you for your time, Scott. It's been a true pleasure. We so. can't wait to have you back. Yeah, I can't wait. It's been fantastic. Thanks for listening, everybody. Play the music there. What's your name? Polly. Polly. How did I forget <laughs> her name? Play the music, Polly. Thanks for keeping it loose with us. Please like and subscribe to our podcast. Check out new episodes weekly and read our blog on looseandconversational.com. Finally, like and follow us on Facebook. I would love to have something from you in my inbox.